You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 134, The Soviet Union, Part 4, Collectivization. The Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 started in the cities, particularly in St. Petersburg, or Petrograd, later Leningrad. It was a revolution of workers who worked in businesses owned by the group of people they called capitalists. But during the summer of 1917, there was another revolution happening all over Russia, and that was the revolution in the countryside. This revolution was focused on land redistribution. Before 1917, rural Russia was largely controlled by large landowners and rural peasants who would work for the landowners um, and then work the land for them and give some sort of percentage of what they were doing to those landowners. The poor peasants were not a fan of this arrangement, as you might imagine, and their greatest goal as a class was to throw down the landowners and own their own land that they could reap the rewards from. The first Russian Revolution in the spring of 1917 gave them the opportunity to achieve these goals, and they would take advantage of it throughout the summer of 1917, with many instances of peasants taking control of the land that they lived on, and depending on the situation, they might simply evict the landowners, or there were some instances where the landowners were just killed. The new socialist government that would take control of Russia after March would not really have the power to stop these changes when they occurred, and the revolution in the countryside would accelerate after the Bolshevik Revolution later in the year, as they simply did not have the ability to do anything about it. This would continue throughout the Civil War years, with a major issue between the Reds and the Whites being the status of the rural peasants and the question of land reform and land ownership. After the end of the Civil War, one of the major features of the new economic program would be the recognition of the land ownership of those rural peasants. This represented a major shift from pure Bolshevik principles of collectivization, but was one that was almost required due to the circumstances. This left the Russian countryside in a state of flux, in which the realities of the situation did not really fit within the communist worldview of how things should run. The problem was that the peasants had achieved their goal, their generational goal, of overthrowing the landowners and taking control of the land. But that meant personal ownership of that land. And at the time, with the communist leaders just not prepared to pick a fight with the peasants, this was okay. But as the years went by, the contradictions between the ideology driving the Soviet Union forward and the arrangement in the countryside would grow. One of the problems faced by Russian agriculture is that larger farms were more efficient, especially as technology increased. The centralizing forces of this productivity meant that there began to be a class of peasants who were becoming more and more wealthy, a class of individuals that would be labeled the kulaks. The growing economic power of this group created what was essentially a new class of rural landowners who were employing other workers, which would just be too much of a class with communist ideology, and the clash between the two groups was becoming seemingly inevitable. One Ukrainian peasant, Simon Eisenov, from southern Ukraine, would write to a longtime friend who was a party official that the situation put many peasants in an impossible situation. They could either do whatever they could to remain poor peasants, not expand their land, not maximize output, or they could work hard to improve their land, buy more land, and then eventually end up as kulaks, and then eventually enemies of the state. There was no good answer here. 
Now, the communists did have, at least theoretically, an answer, and that was collectivization, a system under which the rural peasants would give up their privately owned land, pool their labor and their resources together, and work together. The key point was that, much like in the state-owned factory, the output of those collective farms would be owned by the state, with the rural workers provided for by the state in, in exchange for their labor. This was not a horrible plan, at least theoretically. There could be no denying that larger farms were more efficient, which would only be more true as the Soviet Union was able to produce more tractors and more technologies that would improve future efficiency, which they were doing with the first five-year plan. The problem was that this was so completely against the viewpoints of many peasants, or even most of them. They had just labored under landowners for generations, for centuries, first as serfs with limited freedoms and then as peasants with few economic freedoms. And they had gained their freedom. They'd thrown off their shackles. And with collectivization, it felt like those same conditions were coming back. This resistance was greatly exacerbated by the fact that there were mistakes made by Soviet leaders and how to implement the policies of collectivization, mistakes that would cause tremendous suffering and death in the rural areas of the Soviet Union during the 1930s. One of the challenges faced by the advocates of collectivization was that there had already been resistance in the countryside to greater centralized control during the Civil War period. During the war, the Bolshevik government had put in place a policy of forced requisitions in the countryside to be able to support the war effort. This was done under the guise of a war communism and was seen as an essential action at the time. The result of this policy was a bit counterproductive, though, with it causing a drastic reduction in the amount of grain produced in many areas of Russia. This was due at least partially to the feeling among the rural workers that there was no point in producing more grain if it was just going to be confiscated anyway. The drastic reduction in production did not stop requisitions, though, and there would be famine that would spread throughout several areas of the newly formed Soviet Union during 1921. This would continue into 1922 as well, even though there were efforts by international organizations like the Red Cross to provide food aid. Now, I will say here that these famines in the early 1920s weren't just because of the actions of the Bolsheviks. There was weather patterns and things that were causing problems with farming. It was a little too wet at some times, a little too dry at others. But the requisitions and kind of the impact they had on the rural workers was a contributing factor. It wasn't the only cause. These actions during this period are a perfect illustration of the differing viewpoints of the rural workers and the central government and the urban workers. The Bolsheviks, from Lenin on down, believed that the production of the rural farmers and laborers was state-owned, just like the production of factories in the cities. Therefore, the confiscation of the production of farms was just the logical outcome of that worldview. This extended to the treatment of areas that would not give over the expected quotas of grain and other goods, with the order being given that, quote, in every village, take between 15 and 20 hostages, and in case of unmet quotas, put them all up against the wall, end quote. This was the same type of actions that were taken against villages that had supported the whites during the Civil War. Resistance to central authority was seen as an anti-revolutionary action and was treated in the harshest possible way. The drop in production, the continuing famine, and the overall economic disaster that was the Soviet Union in 1923 forced a change in the form of the new economic policy. For the rural peasants, the most important feature of this new policy was a general change in how rural land ownership was viewed. Lenin would call these changes a strategic retreat, and it saw the return to a structure similar to what had been put in place immediately after the overthrow of the large rural landowners in the middle of 1917. The peasants owned their own small areas of land and the goods that that land produced. 
this policy would continue until the late 1920s, but would be a frequent area of disagreement among communist leaders, and, and really for a good reason. It was, in, at least in my opinion, simply a capitalist system inside of a communist system. And having two systems interacting in that way were bound to cause problems, especially as the group of leaders who strongly favored all forms of centralization or collectivization led by Stalin grew in power. The disagreements about collectivization would gain additional prominence during 1927 due to Soviet agriculture once again missing its production targets. The goal for the year had been about 7.7 million tons of grain, but the actual production had only been about 5.4 million tons. This was a serious problem. Now, the main, one of the main contributing factors was the weather. Once again, there was just some systems of weather that made it more difficult to farm, which happens in agriculture. <laughs> it is very much, you know, uh, something that, that is controlled by the weather. But there were two challenges introduced by government decisions. One was based on government investment priorities, and then another was pricing errors. Even before the big investments made through the first five-year plan in 1928, there were major investments being made in Soviet industry, which reduced the amount of resources put into bolstering and improving agricultural activities. Coupled with this, the pricing policy of the central government, which purchased most of the grain from the farmers, was set too low, which disincentivized production. Given these problems, there were two directions that could be taken from a policy perspective. On one hand, the Soviet leadership could have made the decision to amplify the incentives for the peasants through economic stimulus and pricing policy changes. But this idea ran into resistance from those who were already concerned about the number of capitalist ideas and policies that were being adopted in the Soviet Union, and this would be a major step in that direction. The other direction, and the one that would be chosen, was to increase pressure on the peasants and begin at least some level of forced requisitions. This represented a change back to what had been done during the Civil War period, during which there was a constant push for forcibly extracting grain from the countryside. The first area that this was instituted in was Siberia, with Stalin traveling to Siberia in early 1928 to put in place the systems of extraction that would be used moving forward. Groups of government agents would roam the countryside demanding grain and then physically ensuring that the proper quantities were obtained. The exact definition of proper quantities varied depending on the region or the area, but it was almost always going to result in too much being taken from some families who were left without enough food to feed themselves. These policies of forceful extraction were not the long-term plan, though. They were seen as short-term measures to take care of the gap in production. The long-term plan was for all of agriculture to become collectivized and to be ran via centralized planning and collective work. In theory, farms could be structured much like large factories, with everybody working together towards a common goal, with the production given over to the central government in exchange for that same government taking care of all of the workers. In theory, this would happen organically in the countryside, because once the peasants learned about communism and its benefits, they would clearly be able to see that it was just a better way to do things, just like the workers had found out in, in the urban settings over the previous decades. But then, the rural workers didn't. The fact that this voluntary collectivization was not occurring was accepted during the mid-1920s because sufficient grain was being produced and the entire agricultural industry was recovering from the Civil War period quite well. But when targets started to be missed to the leftist absolutists among the Soviet leadership, there was only one answer, the capitalist nature of the agricultural sector of the Soviet economy. This would begin to change in 1929. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In early 1929, both Stalin and Bukharin agreed that changes needed to be made, but they had polar opposite opinions on what should be done. Bukharin was one of the leaders for the idea that the best path forward was to further embrace free market ideas specifically for agriculture. Stalin was diametrically opposed to this and would claim that this was one of the reasons that Bukharin was one of those right deviationists that he wanted to have removed. In April 1929, Stalin would outline his plan, which would be gradually pushing for collectivization, with an emphasis on gradual. At least initially, it would not involve forced collectivization, but instead it would allocate resources to jumpstart collectivization by providing equipment and tools to collective farms so that they could set an example, with the theory being that this would attract more support among the peasants, eventually converting more and more peasants and land into the collective system. This more gradual approach was essentially required because there simply was not enough machinery and farm equipment to handle larger collective efforts, with the entire system depending on the greater use of tractors to allow for larger areas to be cultivated. The administrative structures to suddenly manage a bunch of collective farms also simply did not exist, and they would have to be created. There would also be the need to have a concerted effort to either build trust with the peasants or to crush any resistance completely. In September 1929, a story would be published in Pravda, the official story newspaper, with reports that the sowing season was going poorly and was far behind what was needed. Part of the problem was apparently the fact that peasants were reluctant to bring their grain seeds to government-run seed cleaning stations due to fears that they would be confiscated. There were some rumors going around that that would happen. This was slowing the sowing of the seeds down considerably, with concerns that it would cause an even greater food shortage in 1930. This is also an example of why there were so many problems trying to make the semi-free market of the agricultural industry exist inside the Soviet economy. Farming was somewhat unique among the Soviet economy in that, to produce a crop, a certain amount of food must be sacrificed in the form of seeds. You're planting the same stuff that you could eat. This meant that there had to be trust among the peasants that there would be a market for the grain after it had grown. That was not a problem. There were plenty of hungry people. However, it also required trust that the peasant would have enough food to make it from the time of planting to the time of harvest, and then they would be allowed to keep enough to eat <laughs> after the harvest. This is where the break in trust between the peasants and the government became such a problem. 
self-preservation instincts of the peasants caused them to be cautious, to hold back grain, and to generally just be more conservative, while at the same time there was pressure from the central government to produce more and more and more. The reduced production without a similar reduction in the need to feed millions of people caused confiscation efforts to be ramped up, especially during September and October, with it being driven by concerns about starvation in the cities. These new drives for confiscation were met by greater resistance from the peasants, and violence would begin to erupt between the peasants who were trying to keep their grain and confiscation parties that were moving around the countryside. Just to make matters worse, there were several instances where the confiscation, when completed, resulted in more grain than expected, and more than the transportation systems could handle, which resulted in food just sitting around rotting due to lack of transport. Not making the peasants happy at all to see, oh, you took our food and then you just let it rot beside a railway station because you couldn't do anything with it. In early November, as the final step, Stalin announced that a complete collectivization of all agriculture in the Soviet Union was going to begin, and very soon, it would not be voluntary. Stalin would make his major public argument for collectivization during a speech to the Conference of Marxist Students of Agrarian Questions on December 27, 1939. Stalin would do the things that are kind of a hallmark of this kind of communist speech. He would pull from Marx and Engels and Lenin to support his theories and viewpoints. I've pulled a few interesting quotes here to explain how Stalin justified his push for collectivization and the problems he believed it would solve. Also, shout out to Marxist Internet Archive for being an amazing resource for all of these episodes. I really appreciate not just the contents of the archive, but also that it's all in nice, clean, plain text web pages. No, no ads, no weird formatting, no PDFs, just plain text on the web. I love it. The first quote here discusses why Stalin believed that collectivization was the only path forward for turning the countryside into a better model of socialism. Quote, of course, there are contradictions in the collective farms. Of course, there are individualistic and even kulak survivals in the collective farms, which have not yet disappeared, but which are bound to disappear in the course of time as the collective farms become stronger, as they are provided with more machines. But can it be denied that the collective farms as a whole, with all their contradictions and shortcomings, the collective farms as an economic fact, represent in the main a new path of development in the countryside, a path of socialist development of the countryside, in contradiction to the Kulak, capitalist path of development. Can it be denied that the collective farms, I'm speaking of real, not sham collective farms, represent under our conditions a base and central of socialist construction in the countryside, a base and center which have grown up in desperate clashes with the capitalist elements, end quote. In the next quote here, Stalin discusses the kulaks and how collectivization is actually saving them from a return to servitude to the kulaks, who were becoming just like the landowners of old. Quote, are there elements of the class struggle in the collective farms? Yes, there are. There are bound to be elements of the class struggle in the collective farms as long as there still remain survivals of individualistic or even kulak mentality. As long as there still exists a certain degree of material inequality, can it be said that the class struggle in the collective farms is equivalent to the class struggle in the absence of collective farms? No, it cannot. The mistake of our left phrase mongers make lies precisely is not seeing the difference. What does the class struggle imply in the absence of collective farms, prior to the establishment of collective farms? It implies a fight against the kulak who owns the instruments and means of production and who keeps the poor peasants in bondage with the aid of those instruments and means of production. It is the life and death struggle. End quote. 
This final quote discusses the fact that collectivization would also be a major component in molding the peasantry into better socialists. Quote, it would be a mistake to believe that once collective farms exist, that we will have all that is necessary for building socialism. It would be all the more a mistake to believe that the members of the collective farms have already become socialists. No, a great deal of work has yet to be done to remold the peasant collective farmer, to set right his individualistic mentality, and to transform him into a real working member of a socialist society. And the more rapidly the collective farms are provided with machines, the more rapidly they are supplied with tractors, the more rapidly this will be achieved. But this does not in the least belittle the very great importance of the collective farms as a lever for the socialist transformation of the countryside. The great importance of the collective farms lies precisely in that they represent the principal base for the employment of machinery and the tractors in agriculture, that they constitute the principal base for remolding the peasant, for changing his mentality in the spirit of socialism. End quote. After Stalin's announcement that complete collectivization was now the plan, a commission would be set up in December 1929 to create a plan to turn it into a reality, and they would spend almost a month debating and determining what the policy should be. There were two different plans proposed. The more moderate plan was to reorganize the land into two different sections. The first would be small plots given to the farmers that they could use to produce food and some small surplus of goods. The second would be larger and would be the collective farms. The peasants would be expected to work on the large collective farms in exchange for which they would be given their small bits of land to live on and work for themselves. This was not that far removed from the pre-revolution serf and landowner system that had been in place for centuries. Stalin would advocate for a different structure, though, removing the concept of any small individual areas of production with the peasants instead being completely collectivized. They would live and work on the collective farms, and they would be provided with food from its production. This was the path of complete control, and Stalin would argue was it was a more ideologically pure path, more leftist, more communist. A key component in both proposals was that the group of people known as the kulaks would have to be removed from the equation. The precise definition of what a kulak was would change over time. But at least in the beginning, a kulak was a rural landowner that had grown to a certain size and prosperity. They had larger farms, they often employed workers on those farms, and they were the most likely to have things like tractors that they used to accelerate their growth and prosperity these individuals would be targeted for special treatment under the claim that they were capitalists and were, through their actions, attacking the communist system. The special treatment would involve their lands and all of their possessions being confiscated and with the kulaks and their families being exiled, generally to somewhere like Siberia. Their land and their equipment would then form the nuclei of collective farms. This was a major risk because the kulaks and their properties were the most prosperous areas of Soviet agriculture, and by destroying them, it increased the stakes placed on collectivization. It, it had to work once they started kicking the kulaks off of their lands. These risks were accepted, and what has come to be called de-kulakization would become official policy and would be pursued. There was general optimism about collectivization being a good plan for the future of the Soviet Union. There was acceptance of the fact that it was not something that could be done without violence, though. The plan called for land and goods of peasants across the entire Soviet Union to be confiscated, and then large numbers of those peasants to be forcibly relocated to collective farms. Not everyone was going to be happy about these changes. As the collective drive really got rolling in early 1930, this is exactly what happened. 
Violence in the countryside increased, with there being thousands of instances where peasants resisted the changes that were being made. Hundreds of thousands of individuals participated in these actions. This was then met by greater repression from the government agents that were trying to make collectivization happen. One interesting fact is that the support for collectivization within the Red Army was not that strong, with so much of the Red Army being drawn from the same rural families that were now resisting collectivization. This meant that the Red Army was not always the group that was used to put down this peasant violence. They were sometimes seen as, as unreliable in these tasks. And so groups like the OGPU, or the Joint State Political Directorate, which would later be incorporated into the NKVD, being kind of the face and the bulwark of these collectivization efforts, which just increased the antagonism between the two groups, the NKVD and the government, and the peasants. A major problem was that by March 1930, the unrest in the countryside was starting to cause problems with the spring planting season. During March, there were over 6,000 separate instances of unrest and resistance among the peasant population, involving up to 2 million people. None of this resistance was really well organized. It was not like these actions were a threat to state power. The peasants just did not have the weapons or were never really organized into large groups to kind of pose this kind of threat. But also, there were not a lot of deaths during this time. The goal of the peasants was often just to push the government groups away, not to kill them. But all of these actions were taking away from the job that the peasants needed to be doing during the spring, which was planting. If the goal was to reform Soviet agriculture to increase production, the worst possible thing to do would be to disrupt the spring planting season. This problem would result in a change in policy, with some property being given back to the peasants, particularly livestock and some land around where they lived. This was seen as a temporary tactical retreat to make sure that the planting season happened before a renewed effort was made. These changes, when combined with the general need among the peasants to also do the planting because they needed food, would greatly reduce the number of incidents after March 1930, at least during that planting season. But collectivization would continue. Decolectization would continue. Violence would continue. Oh, and also, agricultural production, the thing this was designed to increase, would continue to collapse. Next episode, we will continue our discussion of Soviet agriculture as the reduction in production of food in the countryside is not met with a reduction in the extraction quotas of food from that same countryside, with the inevitable result of famine, suffering, and death.